0: Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 2, 3, and 4 this morning of Romans 1, and we move into week 4 of our series that we've entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And we find ourselves again looking at Paul and reading from Paul, speaking about this gospel that he has shared, not only with the Romans, but this gospel that Christ shares with all who will hear and I would ask that as you are turning there that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. This is what the Word of the Lord says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who was as to the human, his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray a blessing on the word this morning. Father God, we come, we are fallible people. Father God, we come and we are a broken people. Father God, we come and we are a sinful people. And Lord, we approach humbly your infallible word. We come and we learn or desire to learn the truths that are contained in it. Father, we want to learn about this gospel this morning because it regards your son. And Lord, at the end of the day, the difference between those who are uh, given eternal life in Christ Jesus and those who will experience torment in a place called hell hinges on those last four words that we will confess that Jesus Christ is. Is our Lord. So, Lord, open our eyes today, for we want to see you this morning, and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we closed out the sermon by looking at the phrase, the gospel of God. And at the end of the service, I gave you four responses that we can have as people when it comes to responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first one I told you about was that you can be antagonistic. If you want to write these down, if you forgot them or weren't here last week, go ahead and write these down. You can be antagonistic towards the gospel. The word antagonistic uh, signifies being in conflict with something, being at odds with it. So what this means is you're at odds with the gospel. You're in conflict with Jesus Christ. We see that in the life of Saul before his conversion on the road to Damascus. The next one is apathetic. You can be apathetic. And what that means is just a sense or a feeling of really not caring one way or the other. This idea literally means that you're just not very concerned about it. And there are some today uh, who just aren't very concerned about the things of Jesus. They're not concerned about what I'm going to be sharing this morning, and uh, they really don't care. They're more concerned about uh, their activities today, uh, whether the Cubs are going to gain another game on the Brewers this afternoon, whether or not the Bears are going to finally score a touchdown or not. You're more concerned about those things than you are per se the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next one is that we talked about is attracted. You can be attracted to the gospel, and what that means is that there's some aspect, there's uh, something a part of this gospel, there's something about Jesus that you have a growing desire to learn about. And what it it means to be attracted is that there are parts that compel your interest, whether it's his kindness, whether it's his goodness, whether it's the historical stories of him uh, healing the blind, uh, raising the dead, whatever it may be, there's parts of Jesus, there's parts of the gospel that you are attracted to. And then the last one I told you, which is what I believe the only response, the only way you can be saved is if you become attached to the gospel. This means to bind, to fasten, to secure, and to join. And last week I asked you to think about where you're at with the gospel. I don't want you to look to the people around you or to your spouse or to your kids. Where are you at this morning when it comes to the gospel? If I was to poll us as a congregation this morning, there is no doubt in my mind that there would be some who would say, I am antagonistic. I wouldn't tell anybody, but I really can't stand Jesus. I don't want nothing to do with him. Yeah, I may come to church, but it's because mom and dad make me come to church. Or maybe my wife does or my husband do, does. You know, you're know, you just angry that, that God would even say some of the things that he does. You're antagonistic. Others are apathetic. You're here. You don't know why you're here. Maybe it's just to pass the time. Maybe it's because you've met some friends, and, and you're really not concerned about what the Word says to you. You just you really don't care, while others may uh, be attracted. Maybe there are some aspects of... Uh, of the Christian uh, life and the lifestyle that you like, maybe you like a set of rules to keep you in line. Maybe you like uh, the uh, assurance that uh, if you profess, uh, uh, salve- uh, profess your uh, trust in Jesus Christ, that you're, you're in, and, and the thing to do is just to go and and be a part of a church service. And you're attracted to the worship or or to the people you're hanging out with. Well, I will tell you, the elders desire nothing more than for Village Bible Church to be a Romans one one church, servants of God, messengers of the gospel who live lives that are set apart to live out the gospel in their own lives. But for that to become a reality, we have to move people that are antagonistic. We have to move people that are apathetic. We even have to move people who are attracted to the gospel. We need to move them to being attached. Well, how does that happen? And how does that take place? I began to think about that, this antagonism, this uh, apathy, this... Uh, attractiveness, and I began to think about my own courting experience with Amanda. Now, many of you know the story. Some of you don't. I will not bore you with the details because it paints me in a pretty bad light. But nonetheless, when I met Amanda, it was in a classroom setting during a class, I might add, which I was late for, uh, that I saw Amanda sitting in the room, and I went and talked with her. She didn't want nothing to do with me. I talked with her. She says, wait, wait, will you stop talking? The teacher's talking. Get away from me. She was antagonistic towards me. I don't want nothing to do with you. In fact, my wife, and just one, one quick thing. A lot of people have been asking me, did I get in trouble last week? Can I tell you something? I'm no stupid man. If I'm going to announce something to 450 people, you better believe I've talked with my wife about sharing that, all right? I was born during the day. I wasn't born yesterday, it says. But anyway, she said, No, I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. Get away. Uh, Your hair's all messed up. You wear weird clothes. Just get away from me. And then, as time went on, I was in the class with her, and I found myself uh, just very little interaction with her, and I could sense that it went from antagonism to apathy. She just didn't care. She sat there and said, well, he's just another guy in the class. She thought I was like 40 years old or something. And it's funny because if you ask her, she's older than I am, just by the way. So now that one got me in trouble. <coughs> so, so she's apathetic. She says, you know, I, why am I worried about this guy? It's not as if he's going to be my husband or anything. It's not like we're going to have some long relationship. So I'll be nice to him, but I really don't care. We're never going to go anywhere with this. And I got to talk with her, and she became attracted. And and can you blame her? I mean, I got a great sense of humor, ruddy good looks. The Bible talks about David. I'm ruddy, ain't I? I don't know what ruddy means, but it seems to fit. And, And she began to become attracted to me. She started laughing at my jokes. She started to ask about who I am. And then we, you know, as that was going on, we began to date and we began to talk more and more. And, of course, you know that we are attached now. We're attached. And that attachment has brought forth a marriage. That attachment has brought forth uh, the, the prospect of three glowing children. All right. The reason why I did this this week is I'm hoping to announce next week, go cubs, go. So let's, so we just, you know, you gotta know as a preacher when you're gonna announce special things. Yes, Amanda is pregnant. We're expecting our third and uh, pray for her as we continue down this and we're so excited. But that, that attachment has happened. We've now been married almost ten years. We'll celebrate our tenth anniversary. Now the question is, how did Amanda move from antagonism in this relationship to uh, her place where she's at now, being attached. Now, we have to look at two things. First of all, the grace of God on a buffoon named Tim Biddall. God moved in her heart to say, take pity on this man, not just for a date or for a couple of dates, but for the rest of your life. So Amanda obviously has some sins to confess because God has put her in this relationship. But all kidding aside, what happened? How did she move from being in conflict with me to being attached? The answer is she got to know me. The answer is she got to move beyond all those feelings about what she thought of me and her presuppositions about me, and she just got to know me. Our dating times were deep and intimate conversations. We spent a lot of time talking, talking about things of the Lord, talking about dreams and aspirations. We did all that, and as she got to know me, she sat there and said, well, he's not a freak like I told my parents he was. He's a pretty nice guy. And he's got some pretty cool ideals. He's got some pretty neat dreams. And I, I might think about partnering with him in these things. This is the kind of person I'm looking for, and I'm so thankful that she did. I want to tell you something this morning. Wherever you're at in those four uh, or three areas, if you are not attached, the first thing you must do, it's not in your outline, get to know Jesus. Jesus. Spend time getting to know Jesus. You start talking to Jesus. You start, uh, beginning to read His Word. I'll tell you what. Your antagonism will go away. I'll tell you your apathy will walk away. And you will not just be attracted, but you will be compelled to be attached to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what I want to talk about today. How do we move people to become attached to the gospel? I want to answer three questions this morning and have you think about this as you move forward. The first thing I want you to look at in your outlines in Romans chapter one is the first question: Is are you in awe? Are you in awe of the promise of the gospel? Look at what the scripture says. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, what is this gospel, Paul? He says this gospel was promised beforehand by God through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The first thing that allows us to be attached to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the promise of the gospel that what we begin to do is we begin to see that this gospel is of great importance now remember this is this christianity is not a fly-by-night type of newfangled belief now there was a great concern the jewish people had about christianity they said hey this is a newfangled cult This has nothing to do with our old way of things. Yes, we know that there are a lot of Jewish people that are following this Jesus, but but they're not with us. They don't have any connection with the law or the prophets because they're getting rid of all these things and talking about this Jesus being a one who has come as the Messiah. They said, if you're going to be a Jew, you cannot be a Christian and a Jew. It's incompatible. You're either going to be a Jew of the Old Testament or you're going to be one bad Jew with the new. And they said it's incompatible. But as we look at what Paul says about this, doc, this doctrinal manifesto that we call Romans, after he says, I'm a servant, after he says, I'm called, after he says, I'm set apart, he says, what am I set apart to? The gospel of God. Paul, what is the gospel of God? The scripture tells us. We see that what Paul is saying is he's articulating to the people in the book of Romans that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What he's saying to them right up the front, right off the bat, is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the prophets talked about. Now, this would have been uh, writing his own death sentence. Because as a Jew, as a chief priest, as a Pharisee, if Paul would have said that, what he would have said is, all the things that I've been persecuting up to this point, I now believe it. All the things that we've said that these Christians have all wrong. I believe them to be right. And what Paul is saying is, in fact, Jesus Christ is Lord, which we'll talk about in a moment. But what he's saying is he's the Lord that we've been waiting for. He's the one that was foretold by the prophets. And he's telling the Romans that, hey, understand this, that when we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about someone that came on the scene about 4 uh, B.C., But this is something that's been foretold way back in the law of Moses in Genesis 3.15. We talked about that last week. We talked about the promise of the gospel. And we see that from Genesis to Malachi, the scriptures articulate the gospel. The gospel is not four books that we find at the beginning of the New Testament. The gospel is what we find in the 66 books of God's revealed word contained in his holy Bible. That's the gospel. Now we see three things because we say, well, how do you come to this conclusion, Paul? There are three things this morning that I want you to look at. First of all, we see the continuity of the gospel. The continuity of the gospel. As one looks at the 39 books from Genesis to the book of Malachi... We observe that the gospel is seen in all elements. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing to something. The law is pointing to something in the new. The sacrifice, the sacrificial system, all those things that were going on, temple worship, all was pointing to something else, and that pointing was to the Messiah. It was a pointing to saying something better is coming. This is foreshadowing of something that is going to come. We see continuity within the gospel. It was once said about the Old Testament this. It says, I find my Lord in the Bible. Wherever I chance to look, He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there he, at the, be- at the book's beginning, gave to earth its form. He is the ark of shelter being uh, bearing the brunt of the storm. The burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Whenever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky. The scarlet cord in the window and the serpent lifted high. The smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook. The face of my Lord I discover whenever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He is the son of David whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, that stately Aaron deck, uh, the stately Aaron deck. Yet he is the priest forever for his name is Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, Lamb who was without spot or flaw. He's the bridegroom coming at midnight for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open the Bible, I find my Lord in the book. Let me tell you something. The gospel has its totality in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is contained not just in the new, but in the old and the new together. That's why we preach from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't just preach. I remember watching that video a couple weeks ago. I don't want to hear about the Old Testament God. He was mean then. Well, we're going to talk about the mean God sometimes. Why? Because the mean God says that man's got a problem and it's called sin. And that God is going to deal with it. And he's going to punish man for the wickedness. We've got to talk about those things. It's a part of the gospel from God's creation to man's sin to God's choosing Israel to giving of the law to the works of the kings to the announcement of the prophets, everything on the Old Testament is built upon a climatic case that the Messiah is coming and that the gospel will be done just as the scriptures say. Jesus spoke about this when people asked him. He says in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now listen to what he says. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's what what Jesus believes on the Scriptures. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. That's what Jesus Christ did. Next we see the consistency of it. There's a consistent thread when it comes to the gospel, seen, recorded in Scripture. This is it very clearly. All throughout the Old Testament, into the New Testament, you have one thing going on. You have God being holy. God is holy. Then what is man's response? Man is unholy. That is seen in the Old Testament. It is seen in the New. Now we see that God establishes the law for a couple reasons. First of all, God gives the law of Moses to say to man, Good luck trying to accomplish righteousness on your own. If you can get all these things down, all these laws, all these uh, tough customs, you get them down, then you're going to find yourself uh, living some pretty holy lives. But here's the problem. You're not going to be able to fulfill them. And because of that, you need someone to come and is going to take your place. So the law said bring in lambs, spotless lambs. Place them on the altar and put them there to do what? To atone for the sins. Today, I believe, today or yesterday, someone help me. Today, was today Yom Kippur on the calendar? Yesterday. Yesterday, Saturday. Come on, Tim. That makes sense. Alright. Consistency in that. What happens? God's holy. Man is unholy. We need our sins to be atoned for. The Old Testament scriptures speak about that. And what they say is, is they tell us time and time again that man needs someone to take his place. Think about that again, the story of Abraham with his son Isaac. And Abraham is about to uh, end his son's life on that mountain of Moriah. And he places him on there, and what is in the bushes but a ram to take his place? He didn't have to lay his son on there because God was promising and foreshadowing the giving of his son. And there's scripture after scripture, story after story that speaks about Christ coming to take the place. And that's the whole thing. The consistency of it is the story has not changed. The gospel doesn't change in the Old Testament. Then all of a sudden say, wait a minute, everything in the old is over now. Now let's talk about the new wave, the new uh, thing. It's not like Coca-Cola with the old Coke and the new Coke, but the same great taste. There is consistency in what is taking place with the gospel. There's one final thing that we see, and that is the character of the gospel. We speak about the gospel and it's written record in Scripture. Now we must remember what we're talking about. We must understand that this is a story about his 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 story. It is about him. When we look at the history of Scripture, we're talking about Christ and his redemptive story to us, a sinful people. Look at what the scriptures say about this. I'm going to go through them quickly. First Peter one, ten and eleven. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets were looking. They were looking intently. The Scripture says later in that passage that even the angels looked into these things. The angels tried to figure it out. They said, how is God going to take care of man's rebellion? Remember what they saw before the foundations of the world were created? What took place? The devil and a third of the angels, what happened? They rebelled against God. And what does God say? Get out of here. But humans, what happens? His star creation, his star possession of all that he had created, they fall in the same manner as the devil did. And what does God do? God says, you know what? I'm going to promise that one is going to come. And I wonder if the angels had any idea what was going on because they said, you know, when we did that, they got thrown out right away. And yes, they got thrown out of the garden, these humans, but now God is saying in the first articulation of judgment, He says there's an offspring coming that is going to take their place and destroy the works of the devil. And I wonder if they they sat there before Jesus went, and that was what all the hoopla was about when the harking of the herald uh, angels sang, when they announced to the world, Jesus is here. We figured it out. We would have never thought that Jesus would have been the one But he was. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through him he made the universe. What God has shared through the prophets, God announced and fulfilled through the working of his son. And it's fluid. There's a character that God is writing a story about his son. John five thirty nine tells us that you diligently study the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees, Jesus is, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. The reason why uh, the scriptures are so important is we would not know what to make of Jesus without the scriptures. The scriptures tell us who Jesus is. The scriptures tell us what Jesus has done. And if we think that the scriptures are an end to themselves, then we've got a problem. We can begin to overestimate uh, our worship of the Scriptures if we begin to separate them from Jesus. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in that day. What they were saying was "Is the law is more important. And they got to understand the law, but they didn't understand the person who came to fulfill the law. And a lot of times we read Scriptures and we study and we do all our Bible study and answer all the questions, but we never meet the Jesus whom the Scriptures talk about. And a lot of us find ourselves doing that. Now, Jesus, in one of my favorite passages of, of the Gospels, he says in Luke four fourteen through 21, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 tells us, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Think about that for a moment. We have a guest speaker comes. We don't know much about him, but he's, uh, he's from uh, the Yorkville area. We're hearing good things about him. And he comes and he talks about Romans 1, 2 through 4. And he stands up. We would have had the pulpit for him if he would have come. And uh, he stands up behind the pulpit and he says, concerning his son in verse 3 of Romans 1. And he stops there and he says, let me tell you about myself because that is me. What would we have done? What are you talking about? Who are you to say that you have fulfilled the Scriptures? But that's what Scripture does time and time again. It proves that Jesus did what he said he did. It says what he said, and it proves it to be true. Now, how did it all come together? Second Peter uh, tells us, Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty and twenty one. Peter says, Well, how did all this scripture come together? He says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Understand this. When we read the book of Romans, we are not hearing uh, Paul's commentary on something that he's seeing happening in his day. But look at what it, or listen to what it says. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Paul didn't just sit down and say, you know what, I'm just going to write a letter, uh, to the Romans. But look at what it says. But they spoke from God as if they were, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call this dual authorship of Scripture. We say that, yes, Paul wrote the book of Romans, but he did it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What God did is God takes Paul's life, his all the things that are going on, even his personality, and he takes it and he sat him down. And in his daily life, he sat there and he begins to write Romans. And as he does, he writes the very words of God. So when we say that the Bible is the Word of God, we believe it to be the Word of God. Scripture says that, but we also need to understand that God used men to write it down, but it wasn't done by the will of man, but by the will of God. This gospel is of great importance to us because of how it is played out in the scriptures. Are you in awe of that? If you are not in awe of it, you'll never be attached to the gospel. You'll never be attached to the gospel until you become one who opens the book and begins to read the book. You'll never be uh, attached to the gospel until you become a lover of the story of Jesus Christ. The hymn writer tells it this way uh, in his hymn. He says, I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat, what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's holy word. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, who seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Then he goes, I love to tell the story, t'will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Do you love to tell the story of Christ? Do you love to talk about the things of the Lord and how God has revealed Himself in the God-man, Jesus Christ? Do you love to hunger? Do you hunger and thirst for that? You'll never be attached to the gospel until you do. The second point this morning, and I've got to get moving, is are you attached to the person of the gospel? Are you attached to the person of the gospel? Look at what it says uh, after verse 2, because I'm just so glad that Paul doesn't stop at verse 2, but he keeps going. He doesn't say, hey, concerning this dude that's supposed to come, we're not sure who it is. But look at what he says in verse 3. He starts it out by saying, regarding, this word hinges the two statements together. The one that was promised in the Holy Scriptures by the prophets is the one who I'm going to talk about. Now, regarding this one who was promised, this is his son, Now, he's a fulfillment. Without Christ, there is no gospel. Without Christ, there is no good news. And he identifies that this one that was coming, in fact, is the Son of God. He says, this Jesus whom I'm a servant, this Jesus whom I'm called to be an apostle for, the one that I'm set apart for, he is the Son of God. Of God. Well, how do we know that? There are three things that we see that proves that Jesus is the Son of God. First of all, we see it's because of prophecy. It's become a, because of prophecy. Without the Old Testament, again, we would never have known what to look for when it came to Jesus. We wouldn't have known that he was to be a descendant of David. We wouldn't have known that he was uh, going to uh, do the things he did, say the things he was going to be a part of. We would have never known had it not been for Malachi that there was one coming. His name was John the Baptist, and he'd be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. Prophecy. There are more than 330 prophecies that have been fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ, and there are many more that will come at his second coming The next thing we see is that Christ is the Son of God, not just because prophecy declared it, but we see it in his position. He is the Son. Now, Paul tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. What Paul is telling the Romans and us today is Jesus Christ is no ordinary man. You know what separates Orthodox churches, I don't mean Greek Orthodox, but churches that are within uh, the confines of, of good, solid belief and those that are not? Almost every cult that you look at has a warped and defective view of Jesus Christ. And many of them will say he is not the Son of God. That's what many will say. He's not the Son. Oh, he is a good prophet. He's a good teacher. He may have uh, attained something that we can all attain to, but he just started out just like the rest of us. That is false, and that's where cults put their stand on Jesus. Paul says this Jesus is the Son. And what that means is a mystery that's very difficult for us to understand. God the Spirit comes and conceives in the Virgin Mary a child, and that child that is born is 100% God and 100% man. Now, if you can explain all the ins and outs of that, you're a smarter person than I am. That is a mystery, that God can be 100% God and 100% man and allow those two natures to work in unison with one another. We call that the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And it's a mystery. And we begin to look at that, but we know even from the early church creeds, the Nicene Creed back in 324 tells us that God is God and that He was man in the person of Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to John chapter 5. What does this mean? What does this mean? John chapter 5, if you were with us when we went through the book of John, you know that in John chapter 5, this is uh, the chapter where Jesus has healed the paralytic at the pool, and he heals him on the Sabbath day, and we know that the Jews are persecuting him. Why are they persecuting him? John 5.18 tells us, it says in John 5.18, For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, that was one thing, but it gets even worse than that. But he was even calling God his own Father. Look at what it does if you call God your Father, making himself equal with God. He's equal with God. The first things that we see is, first of all, the equality of God, the Father, and God the Son. We worship God, and that's good, but we must also worship Christ. As well. There's an equality within the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. While they have different works and uh, different responsibilities, they are co equal in power, they are co equal in authority, they are co equal in every facet of their being. It's not God the Father on one step of the ladder, God the Son on the other, then, you know, especially in Bible churches, God the Holy Spirit down in the bottom row. They are equal in all authority and purpose. The next thing we see is that they possess the same attributes. Look at what he says in verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The next thing we see is Jesus as the Son will judge the nations. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The next thing we see is that the Son deserves the same honor as the Father. Listen to what it says. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is very important. Listen to what it says in our politically correct world. Listen to what the Bible tells us. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. When you have a coworker that says, well, that's great that you believe Jesus is the way, but Buddha works for me, and we all get to the same God. Uh, no, Jesus says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Sorry, Mr. Uh, Muhammad, sorry, Mr. Buddha, sorry, Mr. anybody. They're not all paths lead to God. Why? Because God's not going to allow anyone into heaven Who does not honor Him? And what's the vehicle of honoring Him? Jesus Christ, His only Son. It's the only way. Both the Father and Son perform the same works. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned, for He has crossed from death to life. Jesus Christ has the rightful place as the Son of God. Now we see one other thing that it involves, and that is not just his position and his place in prophecy, but it also involves a proper pedigree, a proper pedigree. Now Paul moves on to articulating, he says Jesus is the Son, and to prove to prove his Messiahship to the Romans, look at what it says in verse 3. We see that he has the right pedigree, first of all, from a human perspective. Verse 3, regarding his Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. Remember the promise that David was given by God in Second Samuel seven twelve. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your fathers, meaning you die, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish, not your kingdom, His kingdom. The angel spoke about this in Luke 1, 32. He says of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This is articulated even after Jesus uh, died, was buried, and rose from the grave. In Acts 2.28, it says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch, David, died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, David wrote of the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would Jesus' body see decay. For God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Jesus Christ is our Messiah, the rightful Messiah, because not just because of his position as the Son of God, but as his human position being a descendant of David. The next thing we see, and I know this is some heady stuff, let's keep going from a heavenly perspective. Look at verse 4. Look at what Paul says. He says, And through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now what is he saying here? What he's saying is, all right, if I'm going to write 16 chapters about this gospel that I'm not ashamed about, I better tell you the foundation by which this gospel is held together. This gospel is held together by Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David. That's the first big thing. You ought to be a descendant of David to be the Savior and Lord of the universe. The second thing is, is it says he's declared with power. What does that mean, he's declared with power? What that's telling us is is that there is a setting apart that is being done. The word declared is the same Greek word as the word that we translate set apart in verse 1. Remember he says, I'm set apart for the gospel? That's the same word. It's being used in a different way. In the English, he is declared. Well, what does that tell us? Jesus, this descendant of David, once and for all proved he was the Son of God How? By being resurrected from the grave. Once and for all, Jesus establishes His authority as being Savior and Lord. Jesus, on that day of Easter Sunday, got up from the grave and walked out and forever was crowned the King of the universe. Why? Because no mere man could do that. No mere man could walk out of a grave. No mere man could take care of the sins of mankind. So God had to send his son, who by the spirit of holiness, which speaks about the Trinity working in unison together and pursuing uh, this life of perfection that Jesus did, as he was perfect here, he was the only one who could die on the cross. And in doing so, his body did not see decay, as the prophet tells us, but he rose from the grave, and he was declared with power, meaning he was separated, it meant the men and the boys were once and for all separated, and then Jesus Christ is the only one who is to be praised. Why? Because he rose from the grave. One contemporary commentator put it this way What Paul is saying has such amazing force in the original Greek, declared with power. It's as if a football player is in a huge Super Bowl game and the game is all tied up and the receiver catches the ball and runs to the end zone. And this word declared with power is the football player taking that ball and spiking it into the ground as if to give a celebration that all is done. I have won the game. Now, once and for all, I will be known as the victor. And that's what Jesus Christ is being declared with. He is the victor. He is the only one whom we will worship. Well, what are we to do with all this this morning? What, 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 what are we to go with this? You say, Tim, not a, lot of, not a lot of application. I need something to go with tomorrow to work and you talked to me about the Bible, and that's okay, that's good. And you talked with me about Jesus being the Son of God, descendant of David, now declared with power, Yeah, he's the victorious one. What, what does that mean? Look at the last four words of our, of our verse this morning. It says that he was declared with power, through the Spirit of holiness, declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Now look at what he says. Help me out. What are those four words at the end of the verse? Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's our application this morning? The application answer, it must be answered in a question. Are you aware? Are you aware of your position in regards to the gospel? Are you aware of your position in regards to the gospel? We've seen the gospel promised. We've seen the gospel fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Paul stops after giving this brief. I mean, when I looked at this and all that I could talk about, it is, it is a daunting task to talk about Jesus Christ. It is a daunting task to talk about the Scriptures in this way. Why? Because it's a heavy topic. Jesus Christ. The Son of God came and put on flesh that He might be the Savior of our sins. And to try to fit that in a 45-minute to 50-minute sermon, it's a difficult thing to do. But what is the application from it? The application is, is Jesus Christ our Lord? What Paul is saying is, all right... This one that I'm a servant of, this one that I'm called to be an apostle for, let me bookend that. The reason why I do everything in Romans 1.1 1, 1 is because Romans 1.4 tells me that Jesus Christ is my Lord. That's why he uses the term like a servant. He says, I'm a servant. What does this lordship involve? It has some implications, this lordship of Jesus Christ. I want Chet to throw up some slides for you. There are seven things that I see that this lordship talks about in regards to us. Number one, because Jesus Christ is Lord, he has the right to deal with me any way he chooses. He can do whatever he wants with you, and he has all the rights in the world to do that. He's God. You're not. You learn that real quick. So when we say, well, God isn't being fair with me, God doesn't have to be fair with you. God can do whatever He wants. Christ can do whatever He wants. The second thing we see, He doesn't have to treat me the same way He treats my neighbor. Well, my neighbor has a nice car, has a nice house. I'm a Christian. Why isn't God, why isn't Christ giving me these things? The Lordship of Christ says that He can treat people differently than He treats you. And He doesn't owe you anything. And he can do whatever he wants again because he's God and you're not. The next thing is he doesn't have to treat me today how he treated me yesterday. Maybe you had a great uh, decade in the 90s. And then 2000 rolled around and everything kind of fell apart. Or maybe this month was better or was worse than last month. And you sit there and you point your finger at God and say, where are you, God? You didn't come through like you did. Well, he doesn't have to treat you the way he did. He doesn't have to bless you in the ways he blessed you before. God doesn't have to do that because he's our Lord. The next thing is, is that he will not tolerate any rivals to his throne. He will not tolerate, I'm sorry, I'm one ahead, sorry, Chet, throw up the slide. He'll not tolerate any rivals to his throne. If Jesus is God, Jesus articulates to us that we can worship no one else but him. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want you worshiping other things. He cannot have any rivals. So if you're going to serve Christ, if you're going to articulate that Jesus Christ is Lord, you've got to get rid of all the other things that you worship in your life. Number five, which is four, he can answer my prayers any way that he chooses. Let me tell you something. We so many times think that we are so right on with God's will in our life that we start praying prayers and say, you know what, I know God's going to answer this. God doesn't have to answer the prayer the way you want him to. God can answer it any way. I'll tell you, there's no unanswered prayer. The problem is is we don't like sometimes the answer that is given. And God says, you know what? I'm the Lord. You're not. I'm going to answer the prayers in the way that I see fit. Number six, he's not obligated to live up to my expectations, nor does he have to explain himself to me. The Lordship of Christ says he's the king and we're not. He doesn't have to, to serve us. We have to serve him. He's not obligated to reach my expectations. i got a lot of expectations of what I think a good God should do. That doesn't mean that that's what makes a good God. God is God, and he'll figure out and take care of where he wants to be. And he doesn't have to worry about my expectations. We're so busy about making God who we want him to be. And that's the wrong thing to do. And finally, Jesus is absolutely free to do whatever he wants. Do you believe that in your heart this morning? Jesus has the right to do whatever he wants. You want to know why I throw that last slide up there? Because he's God and you're not. So what does that do for us implications? I've got to close this thing out. Let me just run through these very quickly. You want to be attached to the gospel? It's going to be seen in how you live your life on that last four words. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Is he your Lord in the pursuits of this world? Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You can't pursue uh, the things of this world and call yourself a servant of Jesus Christ. You can't with your mouth say, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ and pursue other things away from Him. How about in the pleasures of this world? Colossians 3, 5, and 6. You want the Lord as your, or you want Jesus to be your Lord? Then put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, it articulates in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. You can't go around gratifying the flesh as if your flesh is Lord and expect to articulate with any assurance that Jesus Christ is your Lord. How about in possessions? 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 six says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will then be content with that. Are you pursuing the things of this world and the possessions of this world? If I just get one car, if I just get this house, if I just get, if I just get. You can't articulate that you believe in the Lordship of Christ. You can't call Jesus Christ your Lord and be pursuing the idolatrous ways of this world by gaining more possessions. And saying, this will make me happy. This will take care of me. How about in your profession? Ephesians 6, 5 through eight slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey christ obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on them uh, is on you but like slaves of christ doing the will of god from your heart listen to what he says serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the lord not men what what paul is saying is you want to profess that you believe jesus christ to be your lord then don't serve your jerk boss serve jesus christ And don't try to ruin his business. You serve as if Jesus Christ is running that business. And you say, I'm doing it, not because I like him in any particular way, this boss that I have, but because Jesus Christ is my Lord. And he says, I am to serve him wholeheartedly. How about in our proclamation of words, Luke 6, 45? The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. You cannot speak of the lordship of Jesus Christ and have profane words coming out of your mouth. You can't speak about the lordship of Jesus Christ and all kinds of coarse joking coming from you. You cannot speak of the lordship of Christ and allow garbage to come out of your mouth. It's even seen in our planet. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus comes and he's about to give the Great Commission for us to go and make disciples. And what does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The reason why we go and make disciples is based solely upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ owns the world. So what is our job? He says, I've taken care of the battle. It all is owned by me. Go and make disciples. Don't be afraid. It's his world. Will the him say, "This is my father's world." He says, "All authority' has been given to me. I'm heaven and on Earth." And finally, in our place of worship. We want to talk about being a church that bows the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Let me just close with this, and then we'll close our time. You cannot say... That Jesus Christ is Lord without a desire to worship Him and to serve Him wholeheartedly. Paul starts off right off the bat in this great book of Romans. And he says this Jesus who was promised, He is our Lord. And until we bow the knee to Jesus Christ being our Lord, we're going to fall to everything in this world. But if we see ourselves as servants appointed to live a different way, then what that means is we will bow the knee to Jesus Christ because He is God and we are not let that be true of you in your life let that be true of us as our in our church father God we come before you and Lord uh, we've dealt with a text that there's so much there to talk about and Lord we've come and we've seen that the great importance of your lordship in our life Lord you say if anyone will follow after me he must deny himself and take up the cross Lord, there's a lot of people here today who say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, who do not live for their Lord. There's a lot of people who say, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, who have never followed their Lord. And Lord, you say, if you're going to follow me, that we have to take up the cross. So Father, I pray that we will be people in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, in our families, out of what we say, out of what we do, that will prove That statement that Jesus Christ is our Lord. That that would be a reality within our church. That we would not serve anyone, but only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory. To Him be the honor. And to Him be all the praise. And all God's people said, Amen.